foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Tim Biondo with Code Pink, and welcome to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations across the country. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can check out our website at www.codepink.org radio, where you'll find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. Last week, the Barbie movie and Oppenheimer opened, blowing up box offices across the world and setting numerous records. While this double feature has pushed discourse around war and patriarchy to the fore, Code Pink members have long been talking about and working around these issues. Uh, As Americans take a really rare moment to reflect on the norms of gender and violence which pervade our culture, Code Pink members are really losing no time to use this as an opportunity to educate and mobilize people around the issues these films touch on. I mean, uh, as Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin tweeted recently, imagine if like all these moviegoers in pink and black were in the streets too. Uh, One friend of Code Pink, Eva Maria Repinto, is a PhD candidate in anthropology at American University and she shared with us her research on the militarization of the Barbie doll. Her zine, which you can find shared on our Twitter at Code Pink or our Instagram at Code Pink Alert, um, describes how between 1989 and 2002, Mattel and the Pentagon actually partnered to create a military Barbie to, she suggests, solve their respective PR crises relating to gender. So while Mattel was receiving a lot of criticism for Barbie's gender stereotypes at the time and kind of boxing women and girls in, the Pentagon was faced with the perception that military women were not feminine enough. And this was coming as the public was seeing more and more women taking part in combat roles, particularly the Gulf War. Thus, uh, Pinto's research kind of suggests that these two really powerful American institutions, this enormous toy manufacturer and the military, uh, formed an alliance to mutually shore up their public image, but in the meantime, they were really just further militarizing American culture. The Pentagon is really well known for doing this in other industries as well and having quite a heavy hand in that, such as direct partnerships with video game manufacturers, um, as well as movie makers and providing them with particular access 
to Pentagon equipment and technology in order to incentivize game creators, film producers, and directors to allow them to influence those as well. Um, it is absolutely wild to see that the Pentagon's influence in militarizing our culture goes down to uh, the toys that our children play with. And the wild success of the Barbie movie this summer really speaks to the cultural impact that this doll and this franchise has had on young people across the country and across the world. Uh, this specific venture kind of uncovers a darker side we've been examining as the Mattel Barbie franchise has taken on a bit more of a progressive uh, facade. This is a really important way we can consider what a corporation having so much power over our media and toys and all of those things can have on uh, our children in our country. On the other hand, the Oppenheimer movie has also given Code Pink members even more to discuss. Uh, as a part of our Summer of Peace, where we're taking over 500 actions across the country all summer in all different cities to try to mobilize and make peace popular and visible again and make the peace movement impossible to ignore, a lot of our members have been flyering at cinemas, actually. Um, so talking to moviegoers and engaging people on the need for denuclearization. Uh, the release of the Oppenheimer film actually coincides very closely with the window between the Trinity nuclear test, which took place on July 16th, 1945, and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki just three weeks later in August. Um, the Trinity test took place in Sankawi, also known as Los Alamos and the Pajarito Plateau. And this displaced many indigenous and land-based people and riddled the area with poison and contamination on sacred lands and waters. And that contamination continues to this day. Um, last week, the New York Times reported uh, on a new study which has a model showing that the fallout from the Trinity test actually reached 46 states, Canada, and Mexico. Uh, and so some people have actually received compensation from the government because they've developed cancer or other diseases as a result of nuclear testing near their homes. Um, this happened for people who lived near the Nevada test sites. But um, at the time of the Trinity test, there were around half a million people living within just like 150 miles and they've never been eligible for compensation. They were not even warned nor evacuated prior to the test and the nuclear fallout has a really strong legacy to this day of um, causing cancer and other issues among people who were exposed to radiation from it. In Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the much more densely populated cities were destroyed in an instant, killing and wounding hundreds of thousands of innocent people, not to mention the countless more who faced cancer, leukemia, and other horrible side effects from exposure to these bombs. These bombings on Japan remain the only instances of nuclear weapons actually being used in war, though many other communities throughout the world continue to face really harsh aftermath as a result of radiation exposure from nuclear tests uh, that just happened near civilian areas. 
Uh, days after the war ended, uh, Oppenheimer himself, writing on behalf of the commission, warned the government that they couldn't really guarantee U.S. dominance in the field of nuclear proliferation or that such dominance would even protect us from really terrible destruction. He recommended, rather than securing our future by technical means and beating every other country at nuclear weapons, actually just making future wars impossible, um, not through bombs, but through international cooperation and regulation of this technology. Uh, years later, the government removed him from his advisory position on the Atomic Energy Commission and revoked his security clearance due to allegations of associations with the Communist Party. Uh, the government has since rescinded this, actually within the past couple years, and they called uh, the entire thing a flawed process that actually violated the commission's own regulations. On to the main focus of today's episode. This week, July 27th, 2023, marks 70 years since the armistice which halted the Korean War without officially ending it. The armistice created the demilitarized zone of the Korean Peninsula, or the DMZ as we commonly call it today, and was intended to only be a temporary measure before the realization of actual peace treaty negotiations. Officially, the war is still ongoing under these circumstances. Often called the Forgotten War by American historians, the Korean War carried unthinkable costs. According to Nodut Dol, an organization of diasporic Koreans organizing for Korea's reunification, American and South Korean forces killed about 20% of all people in Northern Korea over the course of the three years of war. They quote General Curtis LeMay, who headed the Air Command during the war, as saying, we went over there and fought the war and burned down every town in North Korea. 18 out of 22 major cities in Northern Korea were almost entirely destroyed by U.S. bombs, with the U.S. dropping over 32,000 tons of napalm and 635,000 tons of explosive ordnance. For reference or for scale, um, that is more than twice the amount of napalm that was dropped on Japan during World War II, and uh, 15,000 tons of explosives is about equivalent to an A-bomb. And again, that was 635,000 tons of explosives. The war was also marked by regular massacres of civilians, particularly on the US and South Korean side of anybody thought to be even remotely sympathetic to the left. Entire North Korean villages were evacuated. Um, in total, three to five million people died in the Korean War, including millions of civilians, as well as almost a million from the Chinese People's Volunteer Army. The war's impact continues to this day as one in three Korean families are separated by the peninsula's division and the U.S. military continues to maintain an outsized presence in South Korea while also enforcing harsh sanctions and isolation policies on North Korea. This week, at 70 years since the armistice, Korean Americans, peace organizations, and many others are mobilizing for a real peace treaty to end the war, an end to the U.S. travel ban on North Korea, and reunification and peace on the Korean Peninsula. I'm now joined by uh, Anne Wright. Uh, 
Anne has been uh, a part of the peace community for 20 years and serves as a member of the Code Pink Board of Directors. Before that, she was in the U.S. Army and Army Reserves for 29 years and retired as a colonel. She was also a U.S. diplomat, served in U.S. embassies around the world, but she resigned from the U.S. government in March 2003 in opposition to Bush's war in Iraq. Um, she's been an active member of Code Pink for 20 years and has been on Code Pink trips to Gaza, Israel, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Yemen, and Cuba. She's an advisory board member for Veterans for Peace, International Peace Bureau, World Beyond War, Gaza Freedom Flotilla, No to NATO, Hawaii Peace and Justice, Pacific Peace Network, and Women Cross DMZ. She was on the 2015 Women Cross DMZ trip to North Korea and South Korea, and she speaks and writes frequently on U.S. militarism in Asia and the Pacific. She lives in Honolulu, Hawaii, and she's the co-author of Dissent, Voices of Conscience. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. Well, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be with you. So um, today I wanted to talk a bit about Korea and the mobilizations happening for peace on the Korean Peninsula this week. Can you tell me a little bit about what is going on this week and why it's significant? Well, it's a very important week because this is the 70th anniversary of the armistice that was signed in, two, in um, 1953, you know, 70 years ago, an armistice that ended uh, kind of uh, the... Uh, war that was going on, the Civil War and the International War on the Korean Peninsula. It ended in an armistice. The armistice took two years to actually create. The discussions for an armistice started one year after the conflict started. It lasted two years, 575 meetings of the committees that were put together to talk about ending the Korean War. During that time, Millions and millions of Koreans were killed. Internationals were killed. Uh, it all goes to the point that on any conflict, ultimately it will end. And it just is how long does the do the do the participants want to keep the killing going? And that that was actually short compared to things like Vietnam, where a fifteen year war, and it was a they started talking about ending it in 1968, and it didn't end until 1975 with millions of Vietnamese killed. So it's important that we, uh, this week, at the 70th anniversary of the armistice, meet here in Washington in a national mobilization starting on uh, uh, the 26th of uh, July and ending on the 28th, uh, that we, uh, we talk about the need for a true end to the war. The armistice stopped the the fighting, but it didn't stop the the hostilities. And as we found out in our trip to North Korea in 2015, the North Koreans say, "Listen, we don't we don't want a war with uh, with South Korea or with the U.S." Uh, they did not say, uh, "You know, we we know we're going to get pounded because we're a tiny little country." And even though now they have a few nuclear weapons and some ballistic missiles, the full weight of the United States military would just go right down on North Korea. And they realize that. Uh, they they want a peace uh, that they can feel assured that they're not going to get invaded and attacked, and they can use their monies that they spend on their military and what they call their defense, which it really is their defense, 
on on economic issues that will benefit the, the public. So we, uh, Women Cross DMZ, Korea Peace Now, Veterans for Peace, Code Pink Women for Peace, all of us are, are joining this week uh, in a national mobilization to remind the U.S. government uh, that it is time for some sort of a, an agreement, a peace agreement uh, that will hopefully finally end the hostilities on the Korean Peninsula. Excellent. Yeah, that's so important. And I think, at least I know for me, within the past few years, it's definitely been um, a learning moment of actually understanding, like, um, I maybe didn't get the full picture on the Korean War when I was learning about it in school and things like that. And although we don't think of it as over, it is very real and present, especially for people on the Korean Peninsula. I was wondering, you talk a lot about like militarization in the Asia Pacific. Um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about like the significance of Korea within like the US military's uh, operations these days as we look to tensions with China and also our longstanding tensions with North Korea and also just the status of like US troops in South Korea. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit for people who aren't as familiar with um, what US operations in that region looked like. Well, US militarization of Asia and the Pacific, the Western Pacific uh, is now on steroids. And not only does it uh, uh, address in the US point of view, uh, the nuclear weapons of uh, North Korea, uh, but as we know from all of the media, uh, the massive uh, um, media coverage of everything that's wrong about China <laughs> is the way they usually put it. There's nothing China can do that is not wrong and is is uh, threatening U.S. national security. Well, having been to China many times over the last 20 years, uh, and having watched this play out, it's just ludicrous. Well, it started during the Obama administration when the Iraq war was ending. And of course, the United States needs to have enemies. We need to have some place that we can send weapons, that we can make sure that the military industrial complex, the merchants of death, the big corporations have some place to send their, their, their weapons of death. Uh, on behalf of the U.S. government, and of course, the big corporations are making millions of money, millions, billions of dollars out of this. Well, the U.S. has increased uh, dramatically uh, its military operations in the Pacific, and using things such as uh, the the freedom of navigation of uh, uh, the um, uh, well, part of the land, not something seas uh, the. Oh, it's a treaty on the use of the seas, which the U.S. has never signed, but they do use this aspect of it called freedom of navigation. And that's what they're saying. Everything is open and we are sending our aircraft carriers, our submarines, our destroyers through uh, particularly the, the Taiwan Straits and you know, right next to the mainland of China. Um, which makes the Chinese nervous because with all the rhetoric that the U.S. is sending out, they're not too sure what the U.S. is up to. And with the U.S. sending top-level diplomats, now Congress people, into Taiwan, uh, really in abrogation of the One China policy that has been the policy of the United States for 40 years. Um, but the, So the Chinese uh, react to that. They send armadas of 
jet aircraft right to the edge of Taiwan, to the edge of their air defense zone. Uh, in Korea, the United States has resumed the largest uh, land exercises that we've had in the Korean Peninsula in decades uh, and has sent a, a nuclear weaponized uh, submarine into a Korean port, into Busan, the first time in 40 years that we've had a nuclear submarine in the Korean um, ports. So all of this, uh, well, and the, the North Koreans respond, thank God they haven't uh, tested any more nuclear weapons, but they do respond with missiles and sometimes ballistic missiles. Uh, one thing I'll give President Trump credit for is that he did meet with uh, Kim Jong-un, the chairman of uh, North Korea. He met with him three times and was really close to signing some sort of an agreement and even the the agreement that was done in Singapore is a step forward in U.S. North Korean relations, although it's seldom cited now. Uh, but during the Trump administration, the U.S. had stopped all exercises, military exercises in South Korea, and the North Koreans did not explode one nuclear weapon, nor did they fire off any missiles. So that shows that if you have dialogue and if you are willing to talk, you know, talk to people about these things, you can move in a different direction than confrontation. And actually, that's now what the Biden administration is doing on, on, on China. In the last week and a half, there have been senior officials of the U.S. government to include the Secretary of State, the Secretary of uh, Treasury, the uh, John Kerry's been over there on environmental stuff. Uh, finally, it seems like the Biden administration has recognized that, oops, we may have gone a step too far, that this hostility stuff is really starting to backfire on us. And we we need to uh, cool down our rhetoric and our actions. So that is helpful. But um, with four years of uh, intense um, China bashing, uh, it's it it's it's got a, a long way to recover, and I I certainly ad, uh, applaud Code Pink and it's uh, China is not our enemy um, campaign because that's really been helpful to make sure that we educate uh, as much of the American public as we can that in fact China is not our enemy, and while we may have differences with them on various things, there's no reason to think that war is inevitable with China. Absolutely. Yeah. And these are so sorry, it looked like you wanted to add something or no? No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I feel like our relations with China and uh, North Korea are just so intertwined. And they both are kind of examples of very similar problems with like civil wars that the US was involved in. And although we stopped being involved in them and things proceeded, we still have these enemies on the horizon when these people aren't really our enemies. And we know that a war between us would be bad for all of us. Uh, and it won't really serve us to keep militarizing this area and escalating tensions with uh, millions upon millions, even billions of people. Um, so I really appreciate that background and connecting a lot of the dots of um, what's going on. Um, now in 2015... I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just mention one other thing. Right yeah, now, uh, it has just started... Uh, here in the last week of, of uh, July, uh, um, a land exercise in Australia called Talisman Sabre. 
30,000 U.S. military and Australian military, plus small groups of NATO countries, are doing land exercises, land war maneuvers uh, uh, all over Australia. And this, uh, every other year, Australia hosts a land exercise, and in the other year, off Hawaii, we have what's called the Rim of the Pacific Naval Exercises, which are the largest uh, naval exercises in the world. And uh, a year ago, we we had um, over 25,000 people that were a part of it. We had 40 ships, uh, like 200 aircraft, submarines. They blew up ships at sea that had land operations. So the Pacific is really uh, filled with all sorts of military exercises all the time. And the U.S. has four new, well, a total of nine bases in the Philippines that it has access to. And that's after 35 years of not having any access to military bases in the Philippines. Now we have access to nine of them. And we have a continuing lineup of, of military exercises that go on in the Philippines. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely been a buildup. I think another hot spot we see with that, that we talk about a lot with the China's Not Our Enemy campaign is uh, the transfer of troops from Okinawa to Guam and the buildup happening there, as well as the construction of a new live fire training range, um, which, uh, of course, we talk about in a lot of other places, but um, is on like secondary forest. It's also very ancestrally significant to the Chamorro people. Um, and so we're seeing all of this at once. RIMPAC was also incredibly large last year. And so um, it's promising to see the Biden administration move a bit towards diplomacy, but I'm hoping, at least this is my personal view, that we're able to uh, continue more on the diplomacy track uh, and pair that with a de-escalation of all these exercises that naturally to many of these countries that we've publicly called our adversaries do read as provocations in a lot of ways and don't really serve the interests of peace. Um, but a little before my time at Code Pinker, several years ago in 2015, um, you and several other Code Pink members, as well as um, women from many other organizations, actually traveled to the Korean Peninsula and spent time um, in on both sides of the DMZ. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about that um, and what that experience was like uh, and how that influences really how you think about peace in this area. Yes, in 2015, there were 30 international women from 15 countries uh, that went to North Korea and then were able to cross the DMZ, only the third civilian group that had crossed the DMZ and then into, went into South Korea. Uh, Medea Benjamin and Jody Evans, uh, co-founders of Code Pink Women for Peace, were a part of the delegation, as well as myself, and we had several other U.S. citizen Christine Ahn from Honolulu was the primary organizer of it. Gloria Steinem, the great feminist activist, was a part of it. Uh, Deanne Lim Borsche, uh, filmmaker who's just um, uh, had a film that came out last year and is, was on PBS just this week. It's called Crossings uh, that documents the 2015 uh, time in North Korea. I must admit, when Christine asked me if I wanted to go to North Korea, I went, well, no. <laughs> it was like one of the 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 few countries I hadn't been to, but of course, you know, I'd read all the 
the media about it. And it was like, I'm a retired army colonel. I'm a former diplomat. I don't think the North Koreans are going to want me coming to their country. Uh, and Christine went, well, but that's the reason they should want you to go. And I said, well, I'm I'm a little hesitant about that. But she convinced me to go ahead and put in my application for a visa. And it came back approved. And I figured that with Gloria Steinem there and then two Nobel Peace Laureates, Marie McGuire from Northern Ireland and Lima Gobi from Liberia, that with the three of them as kind of our protection, <laughs> that, that maybe I could go and uh, and uh, uh, wouldn't get kidnapped, you know, because that's, you know, one of the things that, of course, our government is always telling us you're going to, it's a very dangerous place and, you know, the, the bad things will happen to you. Uh, so I, I went um, and it was quite an experience. I mean, it was it was orchestrated through the government of North Korea. There, that's the given. The people that you talk to have been selected by the government. Uh, but that said, uh, what we found was that we we got uh, a lot of lot of very uh, uh, interesting conversations uh, with the women that were our uh, government identified minders, so to speak. That they traveled with us on all during the five days that we were there. But that gave us time to ask questions about their home lives, their aspirations, their their goals and things like that. We had a peace conference with 250 North Korean women where they uh, gave us a, a, a remarkable and sad picture of the effects of that Korean War that are still going on. And that would be 50. 65 years, 55 years at that point, uh, and the effects uh, on families, the divided families of North Koreans who have relatives in South Korea and who would love to see them before they die, the return of uh, war remains, uh, uh, you know, and the fact that their their society has uh, lived under threat from the United States during this whole period and the, the whole society has not developed as they had hoped that could. Uh, and it could have developed just like South Korea into uh, a powerhouse. Um, because certainly the North Korean people are very smart people. Uh, they've labored under enormous sanctions. And still they have satellites. They have nuclear weapons. They have ballistic missiles. Uh, they They are very smart people. And if they're their intellect could be uh, moved from having to do all of this um, militarism in in defense of their country. Uh, they could move their society very quickly into something I think they all would like. Uh, we we had a remarkable uh, walk for peace out of, on one of the great boulevards in Pyongyang. Uh, then we went on down to Kaesong and then to the DMZ and across the DMZ into South Korea, where we also had a peace uh, conference with about 500 women uh, from South Korea held in the city hall of Seoul, South Korea, with the mayor of the city opening the ceremonies with it. Uh, it was a, a really a remarkable time, and I would love to go back there, but the Trump administration uh, has put uh, the need for the U.S. government to issue a special validation passport to anyone who wants to even try to uh, go to North Korea. 
and they have issued very, very few of the special validation passports, primarily to members of organizations that have had longstanding humanitarian programs in in North Korea. I mean, ver- most Americans don't know that uh, both the American Friends Service Committee, Quakers, and the Mennonites have had agricultural programs in North Korea for over 40 years. Uh, and, you know, they've been sending people in, uh, specialists in agriculture and a community organization for 40 years, and nothing's ever happened to them other than they've been thanked for, <laughs> for their help. There are also medical doctors, American medical doctors, who have gone to North Korea over the years. And in fact, one family of uh, uh, medical folks, a doctor, uh, his wife, who is a physical therapist, and their four kids lived in North Korea for 10 years. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a very different scene once you get there and start learning much more about North Korea. And I certainly hope we can go back to North Korea if we can get the the Biden administration to back off these restrictions that were put on during the Trump administration. Definitely. That's so interesting how, in one hand, the Trump administration kind of surprised a lot of us by moving diplomacy forward in that one way, but then also, like, at the same time is imposing these additional restrictions. Um, And a lot of Americans would probably think, like, we can't go to North Korea because of North Korea. But it's actually our own government saying that we can't go there. It's just another word for hunger taking from you what you need. It's just another word. Imperialism is Another Word for Hunger by Yellow Pearl. Releasing their album A Grain of Sand, Music for the Struggle by Asians in America in 1973, the group's music is considered by many to be the first album of specifically Asian American music, while also drawing influence from the group's solidarity with Black and Latin American social movements throughout the world. 
Welcome back, I'm Tim Biondo, and this is Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, KPFK in Los Angeles, many other community radio stations, and wherever you get your podcasts. This week, July 27th, 2023, marks 70 years since the armistice which halted the Korean War without officially ending it. As Korean Americans, peace organizations, and many others mobilized this week for a real peace treaty to end the war, an end to the U.S. travel ban on North Korea, and reunification and peace on the Korean Peninsula, I'm talking with retired colonel, retired diplomat, longtime peace activist, and Code Pink board member, Anne Wright about the push for peace on the Korean Peninsula and her experience traveling to both North and South Korea with 30 women from around the world in 2015. You mentioned just kind of like the effects of the ongoing war in North Korea, and you talked a little bit about sanctions. And I've heard a lot about sanctions on Venezuela, on Cuba, um, on Syria even, but we don't hear or I don't hear about... uh, the sanctions on North Korea and that impact as well. Could you speak a little bit to, at least in 2015, what the reality of those sanctions meant on the ground? Like, were there any specific shortages or um, differences you noticed based on that sort of isolation that comes with being targeted by like economic sanctions? Well, the the most of the economic sanctions deal with the international Uh, financial systems where North Korea does not have access to the systems, uh, similar to what the U.S. has done to Russia and has done to Iran, that have just uh, taken them off the the landscape of how uh, businesses and countries operate financially. But some specific things that we heard about were, um, and these were from like the American Friends Service Committee and the Mennonites, that they were saying when they tried to bring in medical supplies or agricultural supplies, anything that really had metal with them, even though it might have been a needle, you know, a medical supply needle or uh, things that uh, metals for other medical things uh, or things like hose, shovels, uh, things with metal in them that you need for agriculture, that those were prohibited by U.S. sanctions. Uh, because the U.S. Uh, says that anything that's metal could be turned into some sort of a military object. You know, and it reaches the, the point of ridiculousness uh, and danger when you can't send in objects that are that have one purpose for them. Uh, and the U.S. government uh, uh, turns the system around on them so that that they can't get things like needles and supplies. Um, so those were things we didn't actually see it with our own eyes, but uh, that's what that's what we were told. In fact, when we were there, I mean, I was surprised at uh, the numbers of cars that were on the roads, at least in the down in in Pyongyang. Um, uh, I kind of thought maybe there would be mostly bicycles, and there were plenty of bicycles, but um, the number of cars, the the number of uh, new buildings, high-rise buildings uh, that have been built, the number of uh, residential high-rise buildings uh, to house a lot of people that have come in to work in, uh, in the the capital city in Pyongyang. So I was I was surprised at 
at uh, uh, you know the fact that the North Koreans had been able to to do a lot of things to modern modernize their own society, despite all of these sanctions and oppressions that uh, the West was putting on them. Yeah, I think it was really interesting how you talked about how it's remarkable how on one hand, like the ongoing war and like tensions have prevented so much development, but they've still all nonetheless been able to accomplish very much in terms of development. And I think it's an interesting way to like also reflect back on our own country's development because we think all we talk all day long about how we're spending almost a trillion dollars on war and we have all the technology to do so many wonderful things but we aren't doing it because we're investing in weapons and bombs and personnel and uh all sorts of things that have to go along with being a country that's constantly at war or like looking at war and so it's really interesting to think how not only North Korea but also our own country could uh really improve ourselves and like mutually benefit from not being at war with each other but nonetheless are uh still doing so um well and if you look at another example in in asia if you look at the remarkable uh things that have happened in china uh over the last uh 30 years because they have not been at war they've been focusing on uh on their social development uh and bringing people out of poverty and you see the major cities of the world in Shanghai, Beijing, Nanjing, all of these that have, uh, uh, you know, they've got they've got more high speed bullet trains just in China than the whole rest of the world has combined. Like we don't have one bullet train in the United States, not one. And in fact, I live in Hawaii and for the last 10 years, they've been trying to build a 20 mile, not even high speed, just an elevated train. Uh, that was supposed to be done in two years. Now it's 10 years and it was supposed to be like $2 billion and now it's $10 billion. So if uh, if the US or if, if Hawaii had hired a, a Chinese company to build a rail, it would have been done lickety split and on time and on budget. But so they, you know, they've got the technology. They've been doing this for uh, um, 3 billion people and they've done a remarkable job. Not not that there aren't criticisms that one could have of various aspects of, you know, state-run um, mega projects, uh, but sometimes you need that level of organization and funding uh, to get major work done, and they've done it. And the North Koreans, I think, would certainly be following more the Chinese model than it would be the U.S. model, if they ever have a chance to get out from under the oppressive yoke of U.S. Uh, potential t attacks on them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure every American listening has an infrastructure story of the project that was supposed to be done much faster than uh, it actually ended up. Um, I know I have several from Chicago, from D.C., from all over um, of things that I was always am thinking this would be faster in another country, especially somewhere like China, which is building so quickly, especially when we have issue like climate change that we need to so urgently address things like building green transit infrastructure is so urgent and important and we do need that mobilization of resources but we're only really mobilizing resources that quickly towards war um at the moment 
Um, now, recently you wrote an article. Um, I know I saw it on antiwar.com. It may have been uh, in some other places as well. It's called The Knives Are Out Again for Those Advocating for Peace on the Korean Peninsula. And it was responding to some criticism that you um, and other organizations like Women Cross DMZ uh, received recently uh, for your views on this issue. I was wondering if you kind of take us through those criticisms and your response to them uh, before we close out for the, the interview. Oh, yeah. Well, as uh, as most anybody that's worked in the peace community knows, it's it's tough. And you get a lot of criticism. I mean, there are a lot of people that uh, don't mind war until it's their kids that get killed. And then they're, they'll challenge war. Uh, but the latest salvo was from a, a Newsweek opinion piece that was written by a sleazebag that has been after us ever since we were in, in North Korea in 2015. His name's Lawrence Peck, and he's paid for by a a uh, multi-billionaire lady who likes war for Korea. She makes money out of it. Um, so he wrote about uh, the Stooges for North Korea hosting this national mobilization. And he cited Women Cross DMZ in our trip in 2015 and several other organizations. And then he decided he'd go after me for my views or my work on Palestinian issues. I mean, he was throwing everything into this thing. And so we, Women Cross DMZ wrote a lengthy response back to Newsweek saying, well, shouldn't, shouldn't you even leave and uh, ask us to have a response ready for this? I mean, you just put that out there and then no way for us to respond. And I wrote my little, little uh, diatribe back at, at them, um, you know, citing the fact that, that we know from 2015, when we came back from North Korea, oh my God. Every Washington think tank that makes money out of war was calling us everything. I mean, the Stooges for North Korea was minor compared to what we were called then. But over time, as we we uh, we demanded that we get time from these think tanks to give our point of view, and slowly but surely over these last uh, years, uh, you know, now it's been eight years since we were in North Korea, there are a lot more people talking about the need for peace, the need to stop the confrontation there, uh, that uh, 70 years of confrontation really have not gotten us anywhere other than more money for the merchants of war. Uh, but um, so to have this uh, uh, thing come out in Newsweek, you know, which is a prominent magazine and all uh, was kind of, uh, it was irritating to say the least. And so we didn't let it pass by without uh, our giving our views on it, which actually gave us an opportunity. Uh, sometimes these things that you initially are just horrified that they're hap they happen um, turn out in your own favor because it does mean that there's an opening again that you can talk about the issue and you can explain why you believe that there should be a peace agreement on the Korean Peninsula or for my my part of it, that I could go into why I think it is important to call out the state of Israel on its uh, racist apartheid policies toward Palestinians. And so that's that's the latest. And we still haven't gotten an apology from Newsweek, nor have they printed our, our responses back that we sent in as opinion pieces. 
uh, but we'll keep after them. And it did generate a lot of social media uh, interest. And uh, that's that's really what we're, we're needing. We need that social media push to get uh, people to talk about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I'm so sorry that uh, you've Find, found yourself kind of personally targeted by Newsweek of all publications. I'm always really taken aback when I hear about these sorts of things and you hear like, oh, these are working professional journalists who aren't even really doing their diligence, like aren't talking about talking to the people who they're discussing at hand, not even to reach out for a comment or anything like that. Like that's, I feel, journalism 101, but they have a narrative they're pushing that, uh, is very convenient and very profitable for a lot of people. Uh, and unfortunately, peace is not uh, really a part of that. Well, and I'll, I'll mention one other person that was mentioned in the article. Uh, it's Lieutenant General Dan Leaf, and he is a former deputy commander of the Indo-Pacific Command and had served in Korea. Uh, he got in touch with Women Cross DMZ about a year ago saying, I, I'm retired from the military now, but I wanted you to know that while I was on active duty, I received a prize for an essay that I wrote about the need to change the approach of the U.S. government toward Korea. And here was this outreach from this guy we'd never even heard of. And uh, it turns out he's uh, he's willing to make a stand on this. And in fact, he uh, he, we said, well, would you write an op-ed for the for the New York Times on your views? And he said, yeah, I will. So we helped. Uh, he drafted it, and then we helped uh, put some more stuff in with it, and that came out in the in the New York Times. And then he will be with us in Washington this week, and will be on a panel with Sigrid uh, Hecker, who is the American who has spent more time and probably the only American that's actually been in some of the North Korean nuclear facilities at their re their request, their invitation. And he's written a book uh, called Hinge Points, which which details all the places in the uh, in the last 30 years where the U.S. North Korean relationship could have gone in a different direction and uh, things were not followed up on. And it was generally that the U.S. did not want to follow up from with overtures that the North had made to the U.S. Uh, in trying to calm the tempers and to have um, a relationship that would mean that the North Koreans did not have to fear an attack from the United States. So uh, Dan Leaf will be speaking and uh, Siegfried uh, Hecker will be speaking. And then one of the primary scholars on the Korean War, Bruce Cummings, will be giving a keynote address, and that will be on the 28th, July 28th. And we hope that anyone that's in Washington will come to George Washington University to uh, to hear the full day of, of uh, the conference. And if you can be uh, with us on the, the 27th, uh, as we are at the uh, Congressional Press, uh, press Conference uh, on Capitol Hill, and then uh, over at the Methodist Foundry facility for a healing ceremony, then to the White House, and then on to the Lincoln Memorial. So the 27th will be a very busy day and get to meet people from all over the country uh, who want peace on the Korean Peninsula. Excellent. It sounds like such a phenomenal mobilization, uh, 70 years 
on the dot after uh, the Korean armistice pushing for peace. Um, I was going to conclude by asking you a little bit about the events going on this week, but you already took us right there. So thank you so much for that overview um, and for coming on today. Uh, I really appreciate all the information that you provided for our listeners um, on this issue. Uh, Anne Wright, thank you once again for coming on uh, Code Pink Radio. My pleasure. Keep going, Code Pink Radio. That's all for our show today. Best of luck to all the organizers and protesters out in the street today and other days this week for peace on the Korean Peninsula. If you're looking to learn more about how you can take action for peace this summer, please visit www.codepink.org slash summerofpeace. There you'll be able to take our pledge to peace. You can tell us about our actions so we can share them with our community and you can find events and different resources to help you take action and make the call for peace as visible as possible. That's www.codepink.org slash summer of peace, no spaces. Thank you so much for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. Visit codepink.org slash radio or wherever you get your podcasts to find more episodes and more info. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. Code Pink for freedom. Code Pink for peace. Code Pink to hunger. Was not Iraq, but Iran. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. Code pink, freedom, code pink, for peace, code pink, to hunger. Places 